Okay. Um, let's start off as we do, as, as is our tradition or as, as, as is our custom. We'll have um, a time where we can share with one another and bless one another with what we've been learning and what we've been convicted by. Um, so can we have a representative from Julie's group to be able to share with us? What a blessing. Thank you. Um, so our group uh, did a little bit of uh, exegesis on the passage just so that we would um, really kind of understand um, where Paul is coming from when he's um, talking to the church in Ephesus and um, then what the words mean. And um, so uh, in kind of like going back to how... Um, Paul is reminding um, the Ephesians of their first love and not to um, be uh, distracted by uh, idols and um, just worldliness, um, but instead uh, remember that, that they were once separated from Christ and from each other, um, but because of Christ, then that they're no longer strangers and aliens, so that so that means that um, they're able to come to Christ and come together um, as a household of God. And based on Christ being their cornerstone or um, an important part of their uh, structure, um, then uh, Christ sets the direction and the tone of the church, this, this local body. Um, and then um, with Christ as an important part of their foundation, they, uh, every individual is um, a living stone, um, and which means that uh, it's, every individual is a part of this body that is growing individually, and then because of Christ, they can also grow together and grow as a body. All right, thank you. And I'll call one of the men to share as well. Is G here? <laughs> All right, can you go find him for me? All right, thanks, G. Uh, wow, I was not prepared to share. Um, I think uh, one thing that stood out was, I think kind of when he touched upon it, but the whole idea of being aliens and strangers, uh, which kind of refers to our, hopefully our prior life, and then being part of the kingdom. Um, I think I want to maybe elaborate on that a little bit, and I think this is what kind of struck home for me, is that um, the illustration that Pastor Mark shared with us was... Um, when you're part of a family or part of a kingdom, that is what you kind of strive towards or that becomes your norm um, versus your prior life. Uh, but as we reflect on our life living here, what is more of our norm rather than um, what we ought to be, what ought to be the norm? Right, so as 
as believers and as ones who've been called, we ought to uh, seek for holiness. We ought to seek for righteousness. But is that the norm in our lives? And as I look into my life, I can say that that is something that I need much work on. Um, but I think that's one point that really struck home with me as I reflect on the verse in, um, and what God is calling us to be, that we ought to be fellow members, fellow saints, um, and saints who are really set apart for Christ. So that's my takeaway for tonight. Thank you, G. Can I have my uh, AV team, could you help me with the slides? Could I get my next slide, please? Thank you. I think I need a Bible too, right? That would help. Okay. So we're looking at this passage, and, and one of the questions, hopefully, that we walk away with as we look at this passage is what's, what's the connection between our relationships and the local church? If you're anything like me, okay, my tendency and my autopilot and my flesh and my pride is that my family life is private, my work life is private, and then I have a church life. They all get separate, okay? I think that's the American experience. It's how we're raised. It's how we think, but it's really how the flesh and pride work, right? I have a private life. Nobody tells me what to do. Nobody tells me where I need to take my vacations. Nobody tells me what to do. Uh, nobody tells me who I can talk to and who I can't talk to. Nobody tells me which weddings I can go to, which I can't go to. On and on the list goes on. And I don't think I'm alone. That's, that's generally how most people and most Americans, and especially Americans, where we prize independence, okay, that you grow up and you get a great job and you get a great college education so you can live an independent life and do whatever you want and take the vacations and drive the cars you want. Okay, it's, you know, we're fed that from a young age onwards. And part of the implication of that idea is that our personal lives, our private lives, our thoughts, our desires, okay, and our relationships, those belong to me. Those are mine. They're nobody else's business. And we carry on many times in the church like, you know, what I do, what Pastor Mark does at home with his kids, well, that not only is that none of your business, but what's the big deal? That doesn't affect you either, right? You know, where I choose to go on vacation, where you choose to go on vacation, what type of car you drive, whatever, right? Those things, you know, what difference does that make to the people who are sitting next to me when I sing hymns every Sunday or I'm listening to a sermon? And then I listen to my sermon and I read my Bible in a quiet place by myself and that's my time with the Lord, right? Okay. Am I alone? Am I the only guy who thinks that way? Okay. You're a totally depraved pastor. Okay. Let me, let me do this. Ugh. Not talented at all with that. Okay. Does anybody feel uncomfortable right now? Okay. There are people at our church who have not come to church out of love and consideration for you because they've traveled in Asia. 
And we know in this time and place, we feel that, right? If someone was to show up and said, oh, I just got off the plane from China and I have a fever, but I'm coming and I'm going to do children's church. Would you feel uncomfortable? Suddenly when there's something like a natural disaster or there's something like the coronavirus or there's something big, suddenly we start to think, gee, what another person does and where they take their trips and what they do and their decisions that they make, well, they do affect us. And somehow we start to jump up and down and say what's inside a person does matter to everybody else who they come in contact with, right? We're okay with that medically. But brothers and sisters, sin is something far more devastating to you and your family and to the people you worship with and the people you love than the coronavirus. And sometimes sin can even kill faster and destroy faster. It's only up to the Lord and His grace and His mercy. What's inside you, your thoughts, your desires, your heart, the things that you wrestle with, your marriages, your family, and your work. When we look at God's Word, He makes it very clear they do affect one another, and they do affect the people in the local church, and they do affect the people that you love. And sadly, as we see in the world around us, it doesn't affect people for the better, it affects people for the worse. And that's why God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to address what's inside us. And His remedy is good, but it's the only remedy, but He gives us hope. But that hope is only there if by faith we go to Him as our only source and hope of salvation. Jesus Christ not only is Savior and is Lord. And that is directly connected to what the Lord is doing in the local church. Okay? Ephesians 2, as you walk through, God is providing a blueprint of His plan of salvation, not just for individuals, but for the church. Okay? And as we look at that blueprint, as we walk through Ephesians 2, and we've been talking about it for the past several months in church, and you can sum it up by that statement, for He Himself is our peace. The blood of Christ has drawn us near. That's the context, okay, that we're going through. This is the context of the content of the passage that we're going on. Is What God has done is He's provided a way of salvation so that we can be holy, so that what's inside of us that is so destructive to our relationship with God and one another, can be destroyed once and for all. Now, God does that in our lives progressively. It's not necessarily an instant zap where all the consequences of our sin are gone. But He does, when He died on the cross, forgive us, past, present, and future, for those who are His children, to those who by faith receive His gospel and surrender their lives to Him. Now that actually turns out to be a very, very narrow group, as we will see. Okay? But who the Apostle Paul is writing to is he's writing to the saints in Ephesus, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's writing to those who he is convinced because of the pattern of their lives, ongoing faithfulness in the face of persecution, that these are genuine Christians. 
that God has come into their lives and He has saved them. He's covered them with His blood. Are they perfect? No. But is the testimony of their lives one of progressively looking like Jesus? Absolutely yes. These are who he's writing to. And he's explaining to them in Ephesians chapter 2 how God has saved them. And he's saved them by sending his son to die for their sins. He's sending them by bringing his son into their lives where Christ has become their peace and their holiness. That's the setup for what happens Later, okay, in the passage that we studied this evening. Could I have my next slide, please? And if you want to look at two verses that kind of tie it up, and nobody can read that, I'm sure, okay? So I'll read it to you, all right? But Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. He's speaking to the saints in Ephesus. And this is not your own doing, It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the context of the passage, we talk about the local church. Before we get there, the Apostle Paul is telling them, you are a new creation in Christ. You are God's workmanship. He has given you a completely new life. And that means a new role, that means a new responsibility, but it also means new relationships. Every aspect of your life. And what defines that new life is Jesus Christ. What defines that new life is His cross. What defines that life is the blood of Christ that has drawn you near. Why the Apostle Paul later will say, what what will I boast in? I will boast in the cross. I will boast in Christ. Nothing else. Okay? They're a new creation. They're workmanship. It's entirely God's work so that no one may boast. Okay? And as he saves them in Ephesians chapter 2 and 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul makes clear what the purpose, the reason why God saved these saints in Ephesus, these Gentiles. There's two reasons. One is that their lives would be a testimony of the grace of God. That the heavens and all of creation, now and throughout eternity, would look at these saints in Ephesus and say, Wow, God is holy, but He is gracious. And He gives unmerited favor and goodness to worthless and unworthy sinners who don't deserve it. And the evidence is their salvation. That He has taken sons of disobedience and He has made them His own children. The purpose, brothers and sisters, of your salvation and mine isn't just a better life so that we can lead upper middle class lives and go to church every week and feel better about ourselves. It's so that you would be a testimony, a living testimony of the gospel, the grace of God, that your coworkers would look at you and not say, oh man, what what a top guy who's making all the money. It's, wow, what an amazing testimony of God's unmerited favor and grace in this person's life, in this person's marriage, in this person's family, and in this person's work. That's one, that you'd be a testimony to the grace of God. Number two. 2 verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Second purpose of your salvation why God has come into your life, why He sent His Son to die on the cross. 
is so that your sin and your sinfulness and your sinful desires would be destroyed so that you could be made holy because God loves you and he wants to be near you and he's holy. He desires for you to be his children and he wants to sit and eat with his children and be close with his children and play with his children and watch his children grow up. But to do that, You need to be saved and you need to be sanctified. A testimony to his grace and to be drawn near to the God who loves you and loves you perfectly. The testimony of that is obviously the cross. That's the context for 2, 19 through 22. And as we come to 2, 19 through 22, we see how those two aspects being a testimony for God's grace, and being drawn near to God, how God fulfills that. And where God fulfills that is in Christ and in the church alone. That's what the church is about. Now we've got to stop and ask ourselves for a minute. Does your marriage, does your family, does your parenting, does your work life, does your school life, do those testify that God's grace is present in your life? And do those testify to the world outside that God is near to you? Or is the testimony of your work, the testimony of your marriage, the testimony of your family, as people look at you and see you, God is nowhere near this person. And I don't see mercy and grace I see legalism, I see self-righteousness, I see achievement, I see accomplishment, I see boasting, I see pride. Two opposite sides, okay? Christ came and died on the cross so that your life could be a testimony not to all that ugly garbage, but so that you could be a testimony to His holiness, His goodness, and His grace, and so that God could be near to you. And so when we come to 2, 19 through 22, we start to see what God's purpose and plan for the church is. It's so God could be near to his people, and so his people could be the gospel made visible. And he shows us exactly how that is. Could I have my next slide, please? The Apostle Paul uses three metaphors to illustrate what the church is. The first one is a kingdom. You are no longer, he says... Sojourners and aliens or foreigners, you are citizens. That idea of citizens is you are a member of the kingdom of God with full privileges and full rights. You're able to vote. But very specifically, who is the king and who rules? It isn't Satan. It isn't Apple. It isn't Microsoft. It isn't your parents who paid for your college tuition. Honor them, you should. It's Jesus Christ is your king. He saved you so Christ can be your king and so you can be a citizen of his kingdom, not by yourself, but with who? Very specifically, along with fellow members of, together with, united with, the saints, the holy ones. Okay? 
He saved you so that you could be united with Christ and you could be united with other people who are united with Christ who have been forgiven just like you, if indeed you are saved. First metaphor, okay? Christ is king. Second metaphor is what? You see it up there. Household or family of God. The church is the household and family of God where God is the Father and Christ is Lord, the older brother who oversees the firstborn who has the right of rule in that household. But that idea of household is the idea of a place of love and intimacy where the family is gathered together and is intimately connected. An expression of God's love. Saying to the saints in Ephesus, God has saved you. Christ died for you. His blood has drawn you near so that you could be part of this household where God is your father. Now, I know many of you have had terrible fathers, whether they were Christians or not. What a Savior, what a God. He's not that type of father. He's come so that you could know your heavenly father who has a perfect and holy love for you. A father who is willing to sacrifice his own son on the cross so that you could belong to him and your sins could be forgiven. And a God who puts up with all your shenanigans. Now, for those of you who are parents here, you know what it's like to put up with your children's shenanigans. I don't think I'm alone in that. It doesn't stop you from loving your children. Do you have to do discipline? Sure you do. Are there hard times? Yes, there are. Are there seasons where you're driven to your wit's ends? Absolutely. But it doesn't stop you from loving them. And it doesn't stop you from your desire to be near to your children or want them near to you. And in fact, you'll invest time and effort in loving them and shepherding them and instructing them and pointing them to Christ because your heart's desire is that they will be saved and that they will always be close to you. You're members of the household of God. Third one is the holy temple, right? And the holy temple in Israel, everybody saw. And in the Old Testament, the temple was a place that exemplified the holiness and the unity of God. The holiness was through the sacrificial system. You could go there, but every time you go there, you would smell burning flesh, you would see the altar, and you could not come close until your sins were atoned for and dealt with through a sacrifice that God had prescribed and provided. But at the same time, in the temple, it was the place where the Lord dwelt. The Shekinah glory was in the Holy of Holies and God was using a token of His presence to let the people know, I love you, I'm present with you, I will find a way to be with you. And when I'm with you, you can have confidence and faith that though you are a sinful people and you are unholy, I will find a way to make you holy and draw you near to myself. Until the children of Israel broke the covenant, broke the covenant, broke the covenant, broke the covenant, and then you get to Ezekiel, and the glory of God departs and does not come back until Jesus is born. Brothers and sisters, don't harden your heart. Don't keep on saying yes to sin and no to Christ, because there may come a point where you get past the point of no return. That's the warning in Hebrews, right? But God comes here and points out this illustration of a temple that's being built. And at that time, the temple probably, yes it was, because it's not 70 AD, still in existence. Everybody could see the temple. Everybody would gather together at the temple for the feast. Everybody would draw near. It's the place where people came close to draw near to God. And if you go to Israel this day, you will still see in Jerusalem some of the most expensive homes and some of the most privileged places are those that are closest to the temple. 
And people will do everything that they can to get as close to where they think the Holy of Holies is to pray because they're trying to be close to the Lord. And it's heartbreaking because the Lord is no longer there. Why is the Lord no longer there? Because His glory resides in Christ and in His local church. And that's what the Apostle Paul is pointing out. Each three of these metaphors is built around Christ. Each three of these metaphors is either directly or indirectly connected to the good news of the gospel and the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the word of the Lord, the good news of Jesus Christ. Where the gospel is not present, Christ is not present. Where his word is not present, Christ is not present. Where his spirit is not present, Christ is not present. Where people who are genuinely saved are not present, Christ is not present. What's God doing here? God is building a church, one person at a time, to be a place where His grace is made manifest and where He is able to dwell. And it is a place that exists in one place, one place alone, where Christ is. Because Christ is the one who makes a sinful people holy and Christ is the one who draws people near. What is the outcome of this? The evidence of Christ's presence in a person's life is that increasingly over time, they grow closer and closer and closer to Christ. They become more like Christ. But they also grow closer and closer and closer to other people who are also saved. That is, brothers and sisters, the local church. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul shows us that this illustration of the temple is not just for the church as a whole, it's also for the local church. And in fact, it's the basis for which the Apostle Paul gives an exhortation against immorality, saying you can't be sleeping with prostitutes. And you have to be careful with what you do with your physical bodies because you're part of the temple of God. It's holy. How dare you bring in something to defile it when you know that God is present in your life. And then in Corinthians later, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, that's why he gives the prohibition. You can't go and worship idols and come to the Lord's table. Brothers and sisters, that extends to more than just carved out figures of gold. He's making the point very much so that you are the temple. You are the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. The Holy of Holies has come to dwell. Are we there yet? We're on our way. It's progressive. Are we perfect? Are we a perfect church? Is it perfect? No, absolutely not. But what he's pointing out is God, step by step, moment by moment, progressively is building his church one soul at a time. And then when you come to the book of Revelation, at the very end, when the heavens and earth, the new heavens and earth come, and the city, the new Jerusalem comes down, it is the dwelling place of God whose foundation are the 12 apostles. Why has Jesus not come back yet, brothers and sisters? Because there's other lost sheep who the Lord has already set apart, who he has chosen and he has adopted. They just have not yet been, quote-unquote, officially saved as we know. And when they get added and when that number is complete, Christ is going to come back. 
The only reason we exist here as a church is for Christ to finish the work of building his church through his spirit and to bring those lost sheep who he loves and he died for and he's waiting for to come back to him. Brothers and sisters, God is doing an amazing thing in his church. He is the one who builds. He is the one who gives life. He is the one who makes holy. He is the one who transforms. And it's a beautiful and wonderful picture. And what the Apostle Paul says at the very, very beginning in verse 19. He says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens and fellow members. He's proclaiming to them good news. He's saying to the saints in Ephesus, you now belong to Christ. You now belong to his kingdom. You now belong to his church the place where God is making both His grace visible and His presence real in the world. Brothers and sisters, that is an amazing privilege that goes beyond anything this world can offer. Now, we can't see it because we enjoy sports and all those other things more. But the more time we spend with Christ, brothers and sisters, the more we see how sweet He is the more we see how much he's forgiven us of, the more we see the sufficiency of his blood, the more we see how his work has drawn us near and we don't deserve it, and the more he draws us near to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Can I have my final slide, please? And the place that he brings us is a place where he is king, where he is Lord, and where he is the cornerstone, not just privately, but every aspect of our lives. And because he is king, and because he is cornerstone, and because he is the ruler of our lives, every aspect of our life is characterized by his word and his spirit. And submitting to him is a joy and a delight because he loves us perfectly. And the overflow of our hearts is shared with our wives, our husbands, our children, and our co-workers. And rather than our work and our families and our jobs and our careers shaping our church life, well, I can go now, I can't go now, I have work, I have this, I have that. The very opposite happens. Our marriages are transformed, our families are transformed, and our work is transformed. And they are all transformed because they no longer belong, brothers and sisters, to us. Who do they belong to? They belong to Christ. And they belong to His church. And that, brothers and sisters, is the place where Christ demonstrates to the world that he loves you perfectly, that he is present in your life, and that you are a testimony to his grace. What a beautiful thing. But brothers and sisters, for that to be a reality, you need to surrender to him as Lord. You cannot have it, and you cannot hang on to the cross while you're hanging on to your idols. And so we need to repent of those and come to Christ and ask him for forgiveness 
and surrender our lives by faith and look to him, but not only him, but to our fellow brothers and sisters in the local church. That's God's blueprint for the church. And when by faith we do, is it easy? No. But what the Lord does is he changes us. The patterns of our lives are one of growing intimacy with Christ and one of growing intimacy with one another because Christ's blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But brothers and sisters, when that is not the case, and Ephesians 5 and 6 spells this out for us, when our lives are lived for deceitful desires, when we are not walking in the Spirit, when our lives are not filled with His Word and songs and hymns, when we do not put to death the deceitful desires of the flesh by the power of the Spirit, when we do not look to our fellow brothers and sisters in the local church and look for their help in fighting this battle and putting to death our sin. What we do and what Paul alludes to there in Ephesians 5 is we resist the Holy Spirit. Because in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, he makes the point, the one who is putting us together and building us and putting us close to Christ and close to one another is the Holy Spirit. But when our lives are filled with malice and bitterness and envy, when we don't speak the truth in love, when we conceal and cover over, when we walk in a path of darkness and we stay in the darkness, what we're doing is we're resisting the Spirit and saying, no, I don't want to be with Christ. I want to be over here with the world. Okay? And brothers and sisters, when that pattern starts to persist for a while, it raises the question, Are you really connected to Christ? Is He really your Lord? Is God really near to you? Because it looks like you want to be closer to the world than it does with Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is that Christ has come near to you. And He's come near to you through the gospel. But He's also come near to you through the local church where he is king, not all local churches, but where he is king, where he is the cornerstone, and where he is Lord. The challenge I want to leave with you this evening is for you to go and consider your life and say, is your life in every aspect a testimony of the grace of God and that Christ is near? Or is it a testimony that Christ is far from you And that your life is being lived by something else. If that's the case, you're not beyond hope. He has not come back yet. And there is still time yet. But what he does call us to do is to repent and come to the cross. Because there is hope in no one else but Christ and his blood. My hope's desire is that we would be a church. Where everyone would see and hear and know. And say, Christ is indeed near. And the grace of God abounds. Close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you've shown us your blueprint for the church. You've shown us that every relationship we have belongs to you. And you've shown us that you have the power to transform all of it. Would you enable us, Lord, and would you give us the faith we so desperately need to come to you and you alone 
as our only hope. And would you show us, Lord Jesus, the joy that comes when we surrender and submit to your authority in every aspect and every relationship of our life. In your name we pray, amen.